Esther chapter 4, Lord willing, we'll begin looking at the book of Esther this morning. If I can get my personal electronic device to wake up, there we go. Esther chapter 4, we'll read verses 13 and 14. We'll take a broad look at the book of Esther this morning, do as I often try to do when beginning uh, a series through a, a book, uh, is, to, is to take an overview. And so with the Lord helping us, we'll do that this morning. Esther 4, verses 13 and 14. I'm sure you're familiar, if you're familiar at all with the story of Esther. You're familiar with verse 14. But we, we begin in verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded... To answer Esther, think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Thank you for reading with me. May God add His blessings to the reading, to the preaching, and to the hearing of His Word. Some writers draw attention to what they're saying. They place emphasis on what they're saying by hyperbole, exaggeration, overstatement. I tend to go the other direction sometimes when I'm want to draw emphasis to something and do so by way of understatement. So having said that, let me say that the Bible is a good book. <laughs> Glad to see that four years of education, excuse me, ten years of education that I crammed into four. Glad to see it paying off. This thing on... The Bible is a good book. It's so good, in fact, that the King James Bible tops the list of all-time bestsellers, according to Leland Ryken's 2011 article in the Wall Street Journal. If you doubt the accuracy of the Bible being the all-time bestseller, I would challenge you to do an internet search on it. And what you will find are some lists that give the qualifying statement, all-time bestsellers after the Bible. It seems to be the benchmark for best sellers. It is a good book, and that is an accurate statement. The Bible even says of itself that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That means it is all good. While the Bible, all of it, even the genealogies. <laughs> while the Bible, all of it is inspired, while it is all good, while it is all profitable, there are some verses, there are some passages, there are some chapters, there are even some entire books of the Bible that become more near and dear to us than the others. And the book of Esther has become one of those books for me. 
While all of the Bible is inspired and all of it is profitable and it is all good, the book of Esther has become near and dear to my heart and I hope it does yours as well in the coming weeks as we walk through this book. There's just something, actually there's a couple of things about the book of Esther and within the book of Esther that is that are different from what we find in the other books of the Bible. I share Michael Beckett's thoughts on Esther, uh, which he gives in his commentary entitled The Gospel in Esther. Uh, He wrote, the book of Esther is something of an oddity in the selective biblical recording of world history. He goes on to say, it is our task to find the meaning of Esther and the purpose for which the book was written, and its particular Christology, so that our hearts may burn within us as we read of this strange star set in the Old Testament firmament. Now, when he says this strange star set in the Old Testament firmament, he's making reference to Esther's name. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Her Persian name was Esther. It was a variation of the of the uh, name given to one of the female pagan deities named Ishtar. It's a derivative of that, and it simply means a star. And so he's making a little bit of a word play there, but man, what truth he spoke. A strange star set in the firmament of the Old Testament. And Lord willing, and the Lord helping us, we are going to understand, we are going to come to learn more and understand the purpose and the meaning and the particular Christology that is taught to us in the book of Esther. The verse, the verses we read, verses 13 and 14, particularly verse 14, uh, it, it's an important, pivotal verse in the book of Esther. And from that one verse, we can derive three broad points about the book of Esther. Three broad points about the book of Esther. When Mordecai says to Esther, for such a time as this, it calls to mind, number one, the plot of Esther. The plot of the book of Esther. Since long before Esther's time, the Jews had been subjugated and scattered from Israel. It happened in two stages. First, it was by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Actually, three stages. After the Babylonians, uh, it, they were subjugated by the Persians, and some were, they were taken out of the land and, and into these other countries. Under Persian rule... Many of the Jews were allowed to to go back home. Many of them were allowed to go back to the land, but some chose to remain outside of the land. And by the time Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, by the time he ascended the throne, we see that there were still some, what one writer referred to as non-returnees. The book and story of Esther homes in, focuses in on two Jewish non-returnees. One was a man named Mordecai, and with him his cousin, Esther, who he had taken in to raise as his own daughter. The book of Esther opens in Esther chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. 
Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Now it came to pass. That's the ancient Hebrew way of saying what had happened was, and what had happened was, Ahasuerus had thrown a big party, a party that lasted six months. And that six-month party was followed up by a seven-day after party. And it's at the after party where the story of Esther really begins. It's where it really picks up. It's where business picks up. And things get interesting. I don't want to give it all away right here in the first sermon, but I do want to show some characteristics of the plot of Esther that I think will help us to understand what the writer is doing. And by the way, whoever may have written the book of Esther, it is a masterfully written narrative of the things that happened, uh, things that are recorded here. Um, it is beautifully written. I encourage you to, as we go through this book, to read it every, read a chapter out of it every week. Uh, you will find it. The more you read it, uh, the more you will come to love this book. Anyway, moving on, we're gonna, we see as, as we go through the book of Esther, we're gonna see that the writer of Esther, whoever it may have been, twists the plot in two different directions. The plot of Esther twists first, in my mind, towards humor. It twists towards humor. In chapter 1, the writer of Esther points the finger at Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and really horse laughs him. Let's see how he does that. On the seventh day of the after party, Xerxes, the king, sends for his queen by the name of Vashti to come and show herself to a room full of drunken, dirty old men. And translated from her native Persian tongue, Vashti's terse answer is, nope, not going to do it. The writer seems to be and wants us to be amused by the fact that Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the ruler of a world empire, isn't running things at home. And all the men said, hmm. We're going to feel amused again when the villain of the story, Haman, gets his feelings pinched because Mordecai won't salute him. We're going to laugh when Haman thinks he's going to be led down the street on the king's horse receiving praise, but instead it's him leading Mordecai on the king's horse, walking down the street, having to shout to everybody, thus shall it be done unto the man the king delighteth to honor. And then he covers his head and goes home and cries to his wife and friends. Now this next plot twist towards humor, I, I want you to understand. Remember what I used to do for a living. And remember that one of the defense mechanisms against the things that we see is a morbid, twisted, 
dark sense of humor. I say that, but I had it before, but now I've got an excuse. But one of the things that strikes me as a little comical, think of me what you will, is when Haman hatches a plot for the extinction of the Jews, but it turns out that he's the one who becomes extinct himself. The writer, there are portions of Esther that we are going to find humorous. The plot twists towards humor, but it also twists towards horror. Horror. Put yourself in Esther's shoes. And the other, what the writer describes as fair young virgins, put yourself in their shoes as Persian officials forcibly remove them from their homes for a year of preparation in the king's harem for their one night audition with Ahasuerus. Imagine the horror of finding out that a high-ranking official wants every one of your people killed. Imagine risking your life to go to the king uninvited, knowing that he will either welcome you or have you executed. Imagine the horror that Haman is going to feel when he realizes he's going to be the guest of honor at the necktie party he was going to throw for Mordecai. Imagine the horror of Haman's wife as she witnessed not only her husband, but her ten sons being hanged on a gallows basically in their front yard. There are moments in Esther of sheer horror at what is happening or what could happen. What is the point of the vacillation between humor and horror in the book of Esther? Well, Samuel Wells gives a good answer when he wrote, Faith is at once both deadly serious and hilariously funny. To put that where we live, if your faith is the right kind of faith, then things will be at times really funny, and at other times they'll be really scary. If you're living your faith correctly, you're going to find yourself out on a limb at times. And it is only God who is going to keep it from being sawed out from under you. Sometimes it's a roller coaster ride. I remember when, when we first moved to North Carolina to go to school, and people would ask, well, what are you going to do for work? That was everybody's first question. What are you going to do for work? Well, I don't know. Was your wife going to have a job? Well, I don't know. Well, what about this? Well, I don't know. Well, what about that? I don't know. Sometimes it was funny to look at people and say, I don't know. And it was funny because of the responses I got. One fella just flat out said, Ellison, you're a nut. But while it was really funny at some times, and there were other times that it was really scary when it having to say, I don't know. When you're looking at your life and your livelihood, 
is a scary thing. Not knowing what tomorrow holds for us is sometimes a scary thing. Not knowing if the future will look anything like how we expect it to. It is a scary thing. Listen, anytime you are in a position in which you are sunk, if God doesn't come through, it is at the same time hilarious and it is at the same time horrifying. But that is the nature of real faith. Churches and Christians fall short of what God wants us to be and what Christ has called us to do because we are unwilling to endure the plot twists that accompany being out on the limb for the Lord where it is only He who keeps it from being sought out from under us. And the plot of the book of Esther teaches us, one of the lessons that it teaches us is that a life of faith in the promises of God is both funny and frightening. The plot of Esther. We move on now to our second point, where we hear Mordecai, his answer to Esther when he says, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? It puts us in mind of the providence in Esther. The providence in Esther. From beginning to end. The book of Esther is packed full of the providence of God. What is providence? Well, one has defined it this way. Divine providence is the governance of God by which He with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe with wisdom and care and love. He directs all things in the universe on behalf of His people. And we see that love and that care and that wisdom throughout the book of Esther, but we see it in sometimes in some strange ways. In short, God is in control of everything that happens, even the danger and difficulty that comes into our lives. Oh, we read over there in the book of Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. You see, as a child of God, things don't happen to you as much as they happen for you. That's God's providence. So bearing that in mind, I want to attempt to show God's providence in Esther in light of two truths. Two truths. Let's consider God's providence in light of the fact that He is veiled in this book. God is veiled in this book. As we consider God's providence in Esther... I want you to understand His providence is seen in a most unusual way. In other books of the Bible, God's providence is, is seen in an overt manner. It's very obvious, but not so much in the book of Esther. God works in a covert way. In the book of Esther, like a rogue spy, God goes dark. We see that He's... Veiled in a couple of ways. He, he does no miracles. 
in the book of Esther. There are no miracles in the book of Esther. As you read the other historical narrative books of the Bible, you find records of miracles from the record uh, of, of the creation miracle to the crossing of the Red Sea to manna falling from heaven for 40 years to water coming from the rock in the desert, to the parting of the Jordan River, to the crumbling of the walls of Jericho, to Elijah's prayer uh, bringing the widow's son back to life, and on and on we find miracles throughout the Bible. However, in Esther, there are no miracles of nature. There are no healings. You won't find fire falling from the heavens. You won't find any resurrections. There are no miracles in the book of Esther. Also, God is not mentioned. He's veiled in that He is not mentioned in the book of Esther. In the book of Genesis, we meet God right off the bat. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God. Then at the end, in Revelation twenty-two nineteen, we find God's name again. The Bible is bookended with the name of God, and we find Him mentioned in every other book of the Bible, except for the book of Esther, where He remains veiled. But while He is veiled in the book of Esther, we see His providence in light of the fact that He is victorious. He is victorious. Although He performs no miracles and although He is not mentioned, God is obviously aware of and attending over and active in all of the events of the book of Esther. Esther reminds us that when it seems that evil rules the day, and when when it seems that God is unconcerned, if not seemingly absent, that He has not abdicated His throne. He is working behind the scenes both to care for His people and to carry out His purposes. So you don't seem to, so things don't seem to be going right in your life. So you don't like the overall trajectory of things right now. So you have questions as, to why you're having to face some of the evil that assails you. So you're wondering where God is while evil seems to be gaining momentum in this world. Well, the Lord wants you to know that He's working behind the veil of darkness and things will ultimately go exactly as He has determined for them to go for His glory and for the good of His people. The old hymn writer William Cooper said it best when he wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. But God is His own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Describes God's work in the book of Esther 2AT. You see, Esther is an account of God's black ops. While the enemy is working his plan, 
Understand that God is embedded, hidden, and working in your sector. And He's sabotaging the enemy. His plans and His devices. As a matter of fact, God is a master of taking the enemy's own plans, His own devices, His own, uh, His own pitfalls, and turning them over upon Him. Turning them against Him. God is strategically and tactically superior. But be advised that His measure are countermeasures and they're often on a delayed charge they don't always go off and detonate when we expect them to but you can rest assured that just at the right moment God's plans work for his glory and for your good and that's oftentimes the last moment <laughs> and as it is in Esther so it is in our lives and in this world, and so it will be in the end. God rules. He overrules. And He is victorious. Third, I want us to examine the purpose of Esther. We've talked about the plot of Esther and how it twists between humor and horror. We've talked about the providence of Esther. It's seen in that God is veiled and that he's victorious, and now we will take note of the purpose of the book of Esther. Sometimes in the Scripture, you get the luxury of a purpose statement from the writers. For example, the Apostle John tells us why he wrote his gospel account in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he wrote, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Here we go. He's about to tell us why He wrote the Gospel of John. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life through His name. But the penman of Esther does not give us the luxury of a purpose statement. However, as we study Esther in the greater context of the Scripture, we see that it is here to show us the faithfulness of God, and we see His faithfulness in two ways in the book of Esther. First of all, we see God's faithfulness in covenant. See God's faithfulness in covenant. There's a lot we could say about the covenant that God made with Abraham to make of him a great nation and to through him bless all of the families of the earth. And that covenant was not just with Abraham, but with the nation which came from him, the nation of Israel. Mordecai, we find, even though he's a non-returnee, even though not all of the people are back in the land, he is still holding on to and believing in the covenant faithfulness and the covenant mercy and the covenant love of God. We know that because in Esther 4 verse 14, he makes this statement, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance Rise for the Jews from another place. What he's saying is, Esther, if you don't take advantage of this position, God's going to send help for His people from another 
place. Mordecai knew that God would be faithful to his covenant, even for the non-returnees, the strangers, the exiled. God was still faithful to his covenant. Chronologically, Esther is one of, if not perhaps the last book written in the Old Testament. The last Old Testament, one of if not the last Old Testament books written before the 400 years of silence in which God sent no prophets and no books of the Bible were written. We call that the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament. It's as if before God turns the light off, He's saying to His people, I made a promise to you. I have not forgotten you. And I'm not finished with you. There is much more to come. Child of God, you might feel like a stranger to the blessings and to the promises of God. Could be that like Mordecai, I'm speaking to some voluntary non-returnee to the place of blessing. It might be that even now, you are facing some attack of the enemy. He's working to destroy you, your ministry, your family. Throw a monkey wrench in your walk with the Lord. I want you to know that God is faithful. And He has made a blood covenant with you in Christ. And He is faithful. And He will be faithful. And He has not forgotten. And He is not finished with you. You might be a stranger from the commonwealth of Israel, as the Apostle Paul is going to call it in, a, in another one of his writings in the New Testament. Uh, what I mean by that is there may be one who is hearing me who has never trusted Christ. You've never become the people of God by faith uh, through, uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection uh, of Jesus. Uh, you are without God and without hope in this world. I want you to know that God's covenant is that if you will repent and believe the gospel, calling upon His name, that He will save you and He will bring you into His kingdom. And you who were not His people can become His people, born again into His family. Oh, we see His faithfulness in covenant. But the purpose of Esther is also to show God's faithfulness in Christ. His faithfulness in Christ. In Romans 9, Paul reminds us that the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service to God all pertain to Israel. But then Paul identifies Israel to us in a later writing. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. And he tells us there in Romans 9 that the, the purpose of the nation Israel, that was the, the vehicle, that was the medium through which the conduit, through which he would send Jesus was through the nation of Israel. That was their purpose. God had to protect and preserve national Israel, even those who weren't in the land. Even those who were 
voluntary non-returnees in another place. God had to protect and preserve national Israel to bring about the true Israel, which is Jesus Christ. I like the way Dr. Robert Smith put it, speaking particularly of the tribe of, of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. He said, historically speaking, no Judah, no Jesus. God had to preserve His people so He could send forth His Son. And while none of the promises are mentioned specifically in Esther, and while no genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth is found in Esther, the book hints at salvation through the cross work of Jesus Christ. And the hints are found throughout this book. God causes one to fall so that others may rise. We see it in how He uses one to come forward and act on behalf of God's people. Can I give you a little bit of a teaser for the weeks to come? In chapter 1, Vashti, who is innocent of any wrongdoing in the matter specifically stated, is banished so that Esther could wear the crown. In Esther 2, things go wrong in a garden, at a garden banquet, due to indulgence and disobedience. Yet from that sordid affair, we're introduced to the human agent, Esther, through whom God would work the salvation of His people. It harkens back to the Garden of Eden where while God is handing down the guilty verdicts to Adam, Eve, and the garden snake, we are at the same time introduced to the Redeemer, Jesus. In Esther, it's through the judgment and death of one man that the people of God were saved. I believe that the, in the book of Esther, God was telling the ancient Jews and telling us that there would come one who would fall in judgment so that many would be saved. There would be one who was innocent that would fall so that others could rise. His name is Jesus, and He was full of grace and truth. He was innocent. He went about doing good, never doing wrong, yet He was hanged on a tree for all to behold. It was through His death that any and all who will receive Him will be saved. He bore the curse of death that we might escape it. Esther shows us God. God's faithfulness in Christ to judge sin and to justify sinners. I came by to tell you this morning that even when it gets bad, and even when it seems that the enemy is winning, God is at work defeating him. Even in the evils of this world, God is faithful. God is working on our behalf. He's overruling and overturning Satan's schemes and will send Christ a second time to flip the script on evil and have full and final victory. And the book of Esther 
points us to not only the first coming, but in that way, the second coming of Jesus Christ. All the book of Esther is a comfort to our hearts in such a time as this, where it seems like evil is ruling the day, when it seems like we're at the mercy of circumstances we wouldn't choose for ourselves, but are chosen for us, when it seems like the world has gone out of control, and it seems like evil is winning on every side, and it seems like maybe God is sitting up on His throne taking a nap or with his arms folded, the book of Esther reminds us that no, even though we can't trace his hand, even though we can't see his footprints, even though we can't discern his work, God is always at work. God is never set back on his heels. God never has to backpedal. God never has to go to plan B. But God's work is always being carried out in this world. And in the end, and for all time and eternity, he rules, he overrules and he wins even though we can't discern what he is doing. May our hearts be comforted as we move on in the weeks to come. In this strange star set in the Old Testament firmament known as the book of Esther. Will you stand with me?